We have a really lot to cover. I mean, I don't, it was Marcus's idea to do this. And um, this particular subject, which is like basically like all of Tibetan Buddhism in three days. So it's a little crazy. I often spend a whole semester on this exact same material. Uh, so it'll be, you know, a survey kind of a thing. I hope it's helpful in some ways. So tonight I'm going to talk about the, the whole framework, the concept of these so-called eight practice lineages, um, and then a little bit slightly more, slightly different than the schedule that was made up. Uh, because, uh, yeah, well, I'll just jump right into it and you'll see. Maybe at the end we'll see what I haven't said yet, and that's what I'll say tomorrow. So, um, so I have a structural framework, the, just to explain the structural framework of Tibetan Buddhism. I've relied on the good old fallback of Tibetan Buddhism, which is Shi Lam Drebu, you know, the ground, the path, and the results. Both for today's talk and for the whole, uh, the whole workshop, today will be kind of like the ground, uh, next couple of times going through the different orders, the different um, sects of, you know, practice will be like the path and then, and then the result, whatever that is, the wrap up, the wrap. Um, but I also want to use that same structure to talk about this whole concept of seven, uh, eight <laughs> practice lineages. Um, so, the Tibetan Drupju Shingta Chempo Ye. Um, if I don't know if there's a few of you here from last night when we talked about literal translation, so I'm going to do a literal translation of it, which would really be the eight great charioteers of the lineage of accomplishment. That's actually what is referring to because uh, it's referring to eight people, specifically eight people who brought. Um, who were the conduit, really, for this mass of teachings in India to come and enter into Tibet. And I always think of it kind of like a, I always think of it as an hourglass. You know, there's like just whatever, you know, whatever was going on in India. And then this system that Kontal used brings it down to like one person, and then it gets huge again. So that was, that's the supposed, um, kind of, you know, framework that he, the structure or the rubric and the organ, I'm ca I call that the organizing principle. Um, and so that's the basis um, that I want to talk about today. And then um, the path part in terms of, so we are going to talk, be talking about Jangwon control and the Rime or eclectic movement. Um, more from the Treasury of Knowledge than from actually the Treasury of Precious inst Instructions, unlike it says on the thing, because I mean, that's 18 volumes and I haven't read them all yet. And I probably never will, and that's like impossible to talk about. Uh, but so I would talk about it, it, the intention of that, um, you know, that great collection, but not actually take anything from it. And then the results of, of the movement. Oh, I forgot the path. The path, okay, so for Jamgun Control, uh, in fact, 
I'm calling the path for my purposes of this talk, I'm calling the path the 108 instructions of the Jonang, which was uh, his model, his original model for a kind of a collection of all the teachings, except he got to eight instead of 108. I don't know what happened to the other 100. So I'm going to talk about that. At Jonang, unlike in the advertising, Jonang is not one of the eight um, practice lineages, um, it, but it's more like um, the kind of core that Control used. And it's included in the Treasury of Precious Instructions. And then the results, and I'll go, to, I, I'll talk about, the results are also just like path, just like ground and results, ground and fruition are the same thing ultimately. They're also both the motivation I think Control had as well as the actual results that which I think were achieved, the ones that he hoped for. So backing up just a little bit, or should I back up a little bit? Um, um, you know, oh God, I don't even know where to start. So who was Jongun Control and, and why did he do what he did? Um, oh, Pamatso came, Tashi Dele. Hi, Michael. <laughs> There's these and those. Um, you know, Jamgun Control uh, was born in 1813 and died, according to our Sadra fellow translator, Richard Barron, he died in 1900, which is different than all the other books say. But Shuki knows everything, so I'm going with 1900. And um, he was part of a group of people in the eastern Tibet um, that were sort of this brilliant kind of renaissance kind of thing. I mean, most of you know this, so I probably don't have to, don't you, right? Oh, can we just get like, does anyone never heard of Jungle Control and Annie? Okay, um, this is all for you, Annie. <laughs> huh? Okay, two, um, three, <laughs> popping up. Well, he and Kensei Wangpo, and Jamyang Kensei Wangpo and Chokling Terchen uh, Rinpoche, mainly those three, but many, many more, um, just started collecting stuff. I mean, we could say really it was a lot about collection, uh, this wild, crazy collection stuff. But plus, they had a sort of, I don't know, like a boys' club or something going on, um, even to the point where those that have a lot of faith have said that the original 25 disciples of Guru Rinpoche were all you know, in various incarnations present in, in, around Kongtrol and Kensei and Choling. And um, I haven't seen a list of who they all were, but that, that, you know, it was that much of a kind of like exciting renaissance time in the midst of like a ton of troubles in that area in Dege. So whilst there was all this kind of crazy things going on with the government and invasions and fighting and people being assassinated and stuff. They were doing this work. <clears throat> and also, later faithful people will say that Control knew, Control and Kensei knew that um, something bad was going to happen, you know, and that they better preserve the teachings. And sure enough, that definitely, we're jumping to the results, but Sure enough, if they hadn't collected, Kansei also had huge collections of um, 
different practices. And that was a main function and it's turned out to be extremely important. You know, so anthologies. It's a, um, I have a, a quote from somebody says, um, we could roughly describe the Rime movement, this is what this is, as a vast activity of collecting, preserving, compiling, practicing, and transmitting the different Buddhist teachings of the various lineages without regard to sectarian labels and emphasizing their inner unity. Um, so he was, um, he, you know, in terms of his uh, motivation for doing it, I'm going to read his own words on why he did it. This has been often quoted, but it might just be nice to hear it. He said, um, with an attitude of deep faith in the eight great chariots of the practice lineages, I made great effort to seek out the succession of the ripening empowerments and liberating instructions that had come from those long traditions. Although I might not have the chance to practice them all, the guru's spiritual instructions should not be wasted. For that reason, and because I felt that even if the more famous traditions were individually widespread, the continuity of some of the very rare transmissions were in danger of being cut off and should be preserved at least as word lineages. I also think that just hearing once those essential doctrines of sutra and mantra gives meaning to this human existence. With this altruistic motivation, I collected the essential root texts of the eight chariots and the most profound of their quintessential ripening empowerments and liberating instructions into one treasury. Um, so that's the, that is an inter, a kind of an ex explanation that he did from his autobiography, from his biography, um, explaining the treasury of precious instructions, which is what the Sadra Foundation is working on now. And one volume, we're starting with volume um, 14, <laughs> it so happens, uh, out of 18, which is coming out soon from Shambhala. Um, so, but that wasn't his only collection, and so just to talk about his literary production for a minute, there's five treasuries um, that were, so, Kensei Wangpo, Jamyang Kensei Wangpo and Jamyang Control, they had this kind of amazing back and forth, and Jamyang Kensei Wangpo was the elder of the all, the all of that crowd. And so he was kind of the most respected, even though they traded teachings and empowerments and transmissions. Um, so he gets the credit somehow for encouraging Jamgun Control to do this. And he himself has a huge collection in the same way. And so there's five treasuries. And the first one, which we've translated, which you may have heard of, is the treasury of uh, knowledge. And I've done one volume, Elizabeth has done one volume, and there's 10 of them. And we worked on that for 12 years under the direction of Kala Rinpoche originally. And that one is different than the other four because it's Jamgun Control's summary of these, you know, these and many more teachings. It's not all about the, just the eight practices. In fact, only the volume I did is about the eight uh, practice lineages, um, which is, but I guess why, that's why I'm talking about that today or today. Um, and then there's the um, Treasury of Precious Instructions, which 
maintains the format of these eight practice lineages um, and gathers all these things together. And then the, um, there's the, the Rinchen Terzer, the, pre the tre precious treasury, treasures, which are the Terma collection. Although there's more I just recently read, like yesterday or something, um, that is, there's more than just the old treasures in there. There's um, throughout quite, quite a wide range of things in there. There's the Jachen Kadzer and what else? The Kargyu, the Kargyu um, Ngakze, which is a lot of Kargyu teachings collected all together. And the Jachen Kadzer, which is um, his own, primarily his own compositions. So those are four, I think it's 90 volumes is what they count altogether in the t t Tibetan. Um, so one out of the five is an explanation, which was the treasury of knowledge, and the other four are anthologies, basically. They're like big anthologies and collections. So, um, uh, well, I'm gonna talk about this actually now, and I can maybe go back to it later as the result. Um, you know, he had in mind, of course, preservation. Well, first let me say anthologies. First of all, it's really hard to translate an anthology because it's so boring because there's just this whole collection of stuff. But um, uh, they have a huge impact um, without anybody, without, maybe not always intended. Um, what gets collected gets preserved, and what doesn't get collected tends to not get preserved. Um, so, you know, for instance, the, the Kangyur and the Tenjur in uh, Tibetan, the, the canon, supposedly, one person primarily decided what went in there on his sort of whim. <laughs> and it had a big, you know, effect on what happens. Or even thinking of some of our works, like, you know, how many, I mean, nobody reads, like, the Oxford Book of English Verse from cover to cover, but every poet in there is well known because somebody decided to include them in the art. I think there's been a couple of editions and they add people, but, um, and how many poets never made it in there that no one ever has heard of anymore? You know, they're gone, basically, maybe one or two. So that kind of an effect without even knowing it is, is huge. I have five reasons that he did this, um, but in terms of, um, there's so much to say that I don't, I don't, excuse me if it's not all linear, because it has to kind of go around like this. Um, a second sort of motivation of his was, um, or from a Buddhist point of view, from a Buddhist sort of theoretical point of view that, you know, you've heard of the Buddha teaching 84,000 kinds of teachings for the 84,000 kinds of people, or actually more specifically for the 84,000 kinds of neurotic emotions that we all have. Each one has a perfect teaching. Um, and you never know which one it's gonna get you, what teaching is gonna be exactly the right one for each individual. So that's another reason to make massive collections of highly similar texts. Um, and then I think for control, uh, he mentioned this num many, many times to avoid the sixth root downfall, uh, which is to disparage other teachings. Um, that's a considered a sort of heinous crime in the Buddhist world, uh, one of the worst. And I think Buddhism is even a little famous for its tolerance, you know, 
and, and it is really there, and it's really important. And if you wouldn't have an open attitude towards all the teachings of the Buddha and all the teachings of, the, of religions, then you'd be in danger of breaking even the most basic Buddhist um, commitments, such as going for refuge to respect the Dharma. So that was definitely, you know, he talked about that. That's all, this little handout is from my book, Esoteric Instructions, and um, I think like the, the introduction's pretty good. I used to be a lot smarter. I apparently, I could hardly understand. I had to look up some words. No, I'm just kidding. But um, then, obviously, then one and more of on the effect side is that by looking at all the different lineages of all the different teachings, I mean, we, no one can practice all those. Why look at them at all? You know, what Treasury of Knowledge, even the chapter I did. He didn't even give you enough information to practice any of them. One of the, you know, really important things is, you know, what you know, what you have a little bit of knowledge about, then you appreciate it. And if you don't have knowledge about it, then you, you have a sectarian attitude towards it because you're suspicious of it. It's just natural. You know, who are those people over there practicing, you know, some sakya thing? You know, and you don't know anything about it. But once you see that they're all more or less the same, then it really undermines any tendency, should undermine any tendency um, to think badly. Um, and I think that's definitely a hoped for result that he had as a motivation. And then, um, and also in my theory that I'm gonna put forth as a kind of a different one is that th this famous non-sectarian movement, whatever you want to call it, the eclectic movement of the, of the 19th century in Eastern Tibet around them was actually the result of the collections. You know, it wasn't like they were trying to make a manifesto of non-sectarianism. Because of this eclectic um, collection of all and making anthologies, it kind of resulted in an attitude that everyone gained from looking at those of having respect for all those traditions. Um, and then finally, my uh, thing is what I said about anthologies, um, it created not only preservation of those texts, but it also created like a, <laughs> a culture of festival, <laughs> I think, you know, like this, kind of almost, I don't want to say excuse, but um, a reason to have massive gatherings. I mean, this like, for instance, the Rinchen Terzer, the uh, treasury of um, treasures, the treasury of hidden treasures, takes six months for a lama to give, to give the transmission of it. So everybody comes from the whole Himalayan region and they all hang out for six months and they have the time of their life. I mean, it's, you know, it's a great, it's, as maybe following in the tradition of the massive Hindu festivals in India, you know, that the sadhus all spend their life walking from one to another. That's what they do. It creates a culture. And um, it's that still going on, thanks to his collections and some of the others. So those are the, both the motivations, I think, that were present and the results. Yeah? Well, yeah, but these are just things I made up. <laughs> but I'll go through them again. Preservation, 
um, uh, making sure the right teaching is present for all the different individuals? Do you want me to keep going, or was that the, that was the missing one? Okay. Yeah. Disparage, <laughs> and the root, and the downfall of, yeah, okay, disparaging, yeah. Okay, so, um, uh, what else? So then, what he did, back to, we're, <laughs> we're not really sticking with my framework here, but um, going back to the basic ground of, what, how he organized this. So he took, which has now been investigated by quite a few people, um, and it's in the handout, um, this quote from, that I've changed a little bit from my book on further examination. So it's a, actually quite a tricky Tibetan um, thing from somebody he calls um, Praj, Prajna Rashmi, Rajna Rashmi, uh, but Trengpo Tertun Sherab User. And he, this, this comes in, um, it's actually in the Damgangzi, and he states that that's the, this is the framework that he's going to use. And it's been, it's been uh, suggested by Gene Smith, and I, you know, I just believe him, that um, the chapter Esoteric Instructions from Treasury of Knowledge was the first time that he used that structure and then, and then later, the whole treasury of precious instructions, he kept that eightfold structure in his collection, in his way of organizing the collection. Um, and so that's, you know, our subject here too. And so this, this person, he's from the 16th century, 1518 to 1584. He's a Nyingma Lama who probably, I don't think would would be too famous, except for Kongtrul having taken this plan. And where he, he seems to have gotten it uh, is, is not quite known. And as I talked in that handout, you can see that, first of all, there was um, some the eight pillars, kawa, you know, pillars of the, the lineage of explanation. And then the lineages of practice, there were these eight, there were eight pillars. Originally they were pillars, and somehow then they became charioteers somewhere along the line, I'm not sure. And um, so there's one of the, at the second page of that, you know, there's some recommendations of things you can read. Um, Ringotuku's book on Rime, he calls it the Rime philosophy or something, includes more, is more broad uh, than esoteric instructions, um, because esoteric instructions is only about esoteric instructions. And Ringo Tuku includes the philosophical lineages as well. So, um, where am I? Um, so there's also a friend of ours, young, young Tibetan scholar, who's now translated both the texts by this um, um, this person who created the framework that Kongtrul adopted, and he, um, he himself writes about a paragraph that, uh, on each of the eight lineages and you know, aside from this quote from, from Kongtrul. So that's his framework based on this, you know, one suggestion. Um, 
And the general idea seems to be, like I said, there's one person and that he counts a practice lineage. I, I tend to say practice lineage, but given who these people are, I think it's probably a better translation to say the lineage of accomplishment. And it's the same word in Tibetan for practice and for accomplishment, which is really weird, isn't it? So you have to decide, is it in process or is it done? But I think in this case, accomplishment would probably be better. Um, and so that that is his, his sort of you know rubric, which he says you know this the lineage must come from India. There must be a connectedness to India, um, and not everyone in the world agrees like Thupten Jinpa. <laughs> he thinks if that's the if that's the qualifying thing, then he, why didn't he include such and such and stuff? And he in, uh, we'll have to deal with that sometime because he wrote it in Tibetan, and I'm going to have to translate it, but. Um, uh, so, but it's still a pretty good, and, and you have to think about how, like, there's just a massive amount of information on Buddhism uh, coming out of India in this crazy way, you know, pretty hodgepodge, crazy way. There's no structure, there's no such structure in India. And so there's just all these teachings you know, tantric and Mahayanist and everything and, you know, lots of kind of uh, Vedic stuff mixed in and Shaivist stuff and everything coming over the borders into a completely different culture than the Indian culture. So there's both a, a culture, culture shock and just a massive amount of information. So a lot of the Tibetan efforts were to try and organize this. You know, how do we, or how do we think about this? How do we organize it? And... Um, you know, a lot, it's an amazing effort, huge, amazing effort. And, and each of the lineages kind of tried to organize it in their own way. But in this case, Kontrol's trying to organize the whole thing uh, um, primarily according to this, this framework, you know, this way of thinking about these lineages of the ones. So, so sometimes it's not entirely, not all of the lineages out of the eight have lasted, and so it's kind of like, why isn't that? And you might wonder, why isn't, where's Galupa? You know, why isn't Galupa in there? Well, because Galupa didn't start till way later, and it started with Tsongkhapa, who, who wasn't Indian. Um, you know, why were Gyempas in there? And he's kind of like, nobody, you know, knows anything about those practices. Chut, uh, is only considered a branch of another um, lineage called Shije, which is what I'm working on now. Uh, why? Because Machik was Tibetan and didn't go to India. So that doesn't count. We can't count it. And yet it's such a huge uh, you know, l transmission of teaching, you can't dismiss it. So you got to put it in there. So you put it in as a subsidiary of another uh, practice. So, you know, it's not ideal. Um, none of these things were ideal. And none of them also are very, all of the, all of the categories of Buddhism are not solid. You know, they're just things, I mean, the yana systems and the, um, if you, well, I was going to talk about this with Nyingma, but like the so-called nine yanas of the Nyingma is a way later. Gona Rinpoche didn't, he had like 10 sometimes and 12 and then, you know, it was, 
thing, five families, sometimes it was three, depending on what kind of tantra you're looking at. You know, it's, they're all, you can't take this too cut and dry. It's not cosmic truth. It's just people trying to organize a huge amount of information. Um, I think it's important to remember that. I think this is a pretty good try. I like it a lot better myself than, um, you know, the f uh, four schools, because the four schools, the so-called, you know, this Galupa and Nyingma, Sakya, Kargyu thing is, it, first of all, it eliminates like half the people. And, and also, it, it's, a f it's about something else. It's about large monastic institutions that are represented in the government. It's just a different thing. They're same teachings, you know, the same practices, but it's a different organizing principle, right? I can't drink this without making noise. Is it okay? <laughs> okay. Um, so that's our main principle that, and I have some more things that he said, but where are they? Um, this, this Lama uh, Prajna Rashmi was both a Geshe and a Tertan, which is a, n a nice dual, dual role if you know the different uh, kind of things. And he wrote something that's been translated now as the study and reflections ambrosia of immortality. And then the one where you found this quote is meditations ambrosia of immortality. So in other words, he wrote about the three Prajnas, so-called the three you know, uh, main reasons to study, which is to, you know, study and contemplate and then meditate. And this last one is on meditation. Um, the expression of Drupchu, he mentions this uh, in this translation, is the lineage of attainment or practice, also emphasizes that they are transmitting the effective means and practical guidance of the innermost sacred teachings of Buddhism in Tibet. Moreover, if the model of the eight lineages of attainment is a non-sectarian paradigm, at the same time it provides the roots of the very identity, spirituality, and genealogy of all the main different Tibetan Buddhist orders. Um, so that's this kind of idea that's been kind of current in the language of identity in diversity. It isn't that you like mush them all together and you're going to practice them, but you actually find an identity of your own practice and your own path within that diversity that you can see that they're all um, kind of the same. Um, so any one of them, I mean, the important thing, I think, is that any one of those to control, and there's this is somewhere in quotes that maybe quotes are too boring to read, but um, all of them are the authentic path of, the, of, the, of Buddhism in, in the Tibetan tradition coming from Vajradhara and all of them can lead to enlightenment. And that's, that's the main identity of each one of them. Um, so who was the Jonang? So that's like the, the ground. Then the path, Kongtrol considered himself um, an incarnation and was considered by others an incarnation of Taranata, who is a very important figure in the tradition which is known as Jonang, but also in many other of the lineages. He's in the Shangpa lineage, he's a very imp great historian, great, like, amazing guy. Altogether, uh, the rulers of Mongolia are all incarnations of Taranata. Um, just uh, a great 
master, and before him, another one, Kunga Dolchok, um, who's called the master of Jonang. So, and Taranata was an incarnation of Kunga Dolchok, according to the Tibetan. So, you know, there's a direct line in Kongtol's mind. Certainly, he was a valid inheritor of that lineage. And Kunga Dolchok had collected, and this is way back uh, quite a bit earlier, um, what's Kunga Dolchok, like 15-something? Um, I've lost my path. Where's my path? Jonang. Um, I brought all kinds of history of Jonang in case anyone asks about it, but you won't do that, I'm sure. Um, uh, anyway, he created 108 teachings that he gathered. Um, I have a list of them. Shall I read it? <laughs> you find some of the eight and then you find like four or five different, you can get this on the Jonang Foundation website. It's actually kind of brilliant. It tells you a lot um, of the th everything that he collected, Kunga Dolchok, and um, put them all together. And there may have been other people doing this, but Kongtol, this, this was Kongtol, Jonang Kongtol's inspiration himself. And he says that specifically in the, um, treasury of Precious Instructions. Um, he did that, and then Taranata added to it. So added a history of all 108, and they call it just the 100. You know, they call everything, you have to round it off because it's too cumbersome to say 108. But you might know that 108 is an auspicious number. You're supposed to have a, a rosary of 108 beads and everything, but... Um, when we were talking about the 92, 72 Jews that, you know, and so they got rid of eight instructions so that they could just say 800, but no. They actually, it's 108, even though it's called 100, even though it's called 100, because I have a list of them, and it goes all the way up to 108. Um, so that was what his, uh, it's interesting that that was, you know, the inspiration for it. And y you might know later on the Jonang, because of a certain kind of um, philosoph philo philosophical trend that they had g got into a lot of trouble. Actually, I don't really think people get into trouble. I, I, supposedly they got into trouble for proposing this view called Shentong, which um, proposes, you know, that there really is a self after all. <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm joking. It's not quite that bad. But um, <laughs> it's just a bigger cell with Doc Chen, you know. But anyway, um, uh, I don't think that's really why they got in trouble. I think they got in trouble because Taranata sided with the kings of Tsang when the Dalai Lama was trying to, you know, defeat the the com the the Tsongpa kings, and Taranata just fell on the wrong side of it. That's why, actually, the Jonang got suppressed in central Tibet, not in eastern Tibet. It's been very strong there. It's probably one of the main lineages still very strong. Um, but that has really nothing to do with, I mean, this collection of 108 teachings that Kongtol used as an inspiration uh, were, no, were not on, they're more on practices uh, and of various kinds. So, 
that was what he chose. So he has a framework, and then he has this idea of gathering all these esoteric teachings, pretty much. Um, I want to point out now about these two different treasuries that I keep battering around. I don't know if you're getting confused about it, the treasury of knowledge and the section in the treasury of knowledge on esoteric instructions where he uses the framework of the eight. Okay, only in that chapter he uses that framework of the eight. That chapter is specifically about just what is called mengok, esoteric instructions or upadesha or amnyaya. I'm not sure I got the long A right there, but, um, uh, and, you know, he deals with ta other tantric teachings and other things in other chapters of the treasury of knowledge. Um, what we find in the treasury of precious instructions, even though it's using that structure, is not just Mangok. There's, uh, he collects, in the, in the treasury of precious instructions, at least from the two volumes that I've been working with, he, and he says it's throughout, they're the same, is he collects the source texts of each lineage, then he collects the empowerment texts of each lineage, and then he collects uh, commentaries on, on it. Some of them even by himself, you know, all the way up to his current time. So there's a threefold structure to each of the eight lineages. So it goes way beyond only the esoteric, what I called the esoteric instructions. So that's a different, and I know I said in my introduction to esoteric instructions that you could use it as a, like a table of contents for the treasury of um, precious instructions, but not really. You re I mean, kind of, but not really, because esoteric instructions is very specific. Um, what esoteric instructions are for Jangun control in that treasury of knowledge and I think, I think this definition might go just beyond control, is, you know, the tantric teachings that came into Tibet, tantras, I mean, have you ever tried to read a tantra? Anybody tried to read a tantra? I mean, it's crazy, it's crazy stuff, and very hard to understand. And of course, there's, you know, gurus who teach about it and tell you what you, you know, you're supposed to know because it's so complicated, and after a while, those kind of instructions get written down. They're not actually oral instructions anymore. There's a huge amount of literature that is written down that's called Mengok, but, but it's not the tantras, it's about the tantra. And it's about tantric practice, but not the tantras. And it's specifically really about completion phase, if you, control, uh, you know, the, the phase, of, it's sort of like yoga has a Tibetan yoga practice. <laughs> now everyone will buy it, right? <laughs> Esoteric instructions. Um, anyway, that's what his definition of it is, and, and you can read my introduction, which you should buy, because it's really good. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, Mengak, it can be like, um, I could read you my introduction. How much longer do I have to keep talking? Okay. Um, the very beginning of it, I did describe what I think are esoteric instructions. Do you want me to read it? Is that part of our, or not? You're going like, no, Marcus is like, no. <laughs> I wasn't going to read the whole introduction. It was just the first paragraph. <laughs> okay. Um, so, 
Uh, where are we? So yeah, I mean, that's kind of the rundown of those eight, I think. I don't think I've left out anything major. Um, the results I talked about at the beginning, you know, that um, uh, we have, you know, taking, taking this, by the way, here's the dates for Kunga Dolchok is 1507 to 1566. Oh yeah, I was gonna mention, and then Taranata is 1575 to 1634. So a couple hundred years uh, pass from the time those were first collected. There's other great collectors in Tibetan history that Kontrol doesn't mention and doesn't seem to take that much inspiration from. And one of them that I think is going to start, you're going to start hearing about, but up till now has really not been um, discussed too much, is Bodong Chognay Namjal. I think, my personally think that he made the first canon. <laughs> um, it's just that it's in a different form and it didn't, for some reason it, it like it, he was a huge, he was a huge person, you know, with lineage, and f he started the first female uh, incarnation lineage, one and only, <laughs> maybe, of the of Vajrayogi, of the Dorje Pamo incarnation lineage. Uh, he's connected with Tantong Gyalpo, who's well known, but somehow Bodong Tokle Namgyal, who had a kind of a lineage called the Bodongpa, now never, n n you know, never got has gotten that much of attention. And I think I know why, because I've read a lot of this, well, probably politics or why, but I've read a lot of thing, you know, searching through it, and it's hard to distinguish. He puts a huge collection of texts, but then he puts his own little commentaries, and it's very hard to tell the difference of his commentary with his, the text, unless you know the text from somewhere else. So maybe that was confusing uh, for people, but, you know, he didn't have a different font or something. He should have had like italics or something when it was his voice. Uh, I found that confusing, but it still is a hundred and hundred and seventy volumes. Or in it's been published in English format many years ago, like thirty years ago, and no one ever, you know, it's just floating around, and it's got it's got like a, it's a treasure trove. Anyway, I just wanted, and he's uh, from the fourteen century, 1306 to 1386. So even before any of these, he was doing this work of collection, always trying to make sense of all this stuff. Um, and we're, maybe Control was more successful, maybe because it's more recent, because it happened right before, you know, shortly before everything got thrown to the wind. And so that, it, you know, managed to last. Um, but then in any case, these eight practice lineages, or maybe just uh, maybe it's partly the randomness of translators. You know, this is who, what we are translating. We're translating control because Kalarimje liked him. My teacher Kalarimje, he was his grandfather kind of spiritual lineage. You know, his guru was his guru's guru was Jamgon Control, and Kalarimje took over the three-year retreat that Jamgon Control started and became the retreat master. So, you know, a very close lineage, and um, maybe that's why we're all translating him, probably. So, so the fate of Buddhism is also, unfortunately, in the hands of translators, and it's totally random. You all have heard the story that it's in um, 
Cuervos' book or something, you know, about, who was it in? About the Tibetan Book of the Dead, that great story that, I mean, everyone's heard of the Tibetan Book of the Dead because it's been around forever, and, and, um, but it's a Nyingma Terma of a very kind of esoteric cycle of Terma in the Nyingma, and um, someone was translating, why can't I think of who that? No, 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 no. No, it was a much more recent guy, and uh, he was an oral translator and some Galupa Lama. He was translating for Galupa Lama in America, who gave a talk probably on Lam Rim or something. And, and then he did interviews, and every single person who came in, just about, asked him, What about the Tibetan Book of the Dead? And, um, and at, you know, he went through all his interviews and everything, and after finally the interviews were over, the Lama said to him, what is this Tibetan Book of the Dead, you know? And <laughs> I mean, it's not, it wasn't a widespread phenomena. It was a random bit of translation, you know, named after Egyptian Book of the Dead. So it's just so random. Um, so I think I... I've kind of concluded that, I think. Uh, do you want me to keep talking more, or do you want to ask questions now? You want to ask questions now? Sure. Oh. oh, I'm going to try and get a sip of this while you're doing it. This seems to be a, a topic among, among the circle of people that I intersect with, that you have so many different people translating and so many different translations for the same words <laughs> and you weren't here last night <laughs> no I, oh no i wanted to be <laughs> i really wanted to be because somebody's had the same yeah, i mean we just i know i'm sorry and yeah, well you talk about how it's all scattered and there's so much information but not only is there so much information but there's all of these Different translations. Of the same information. Yeah. And, and yet using entirely different terminology. Uh, yeah. Well, I, how I answered that last night, I mean, yes, that's di I realize that's difficult. By the way, as for all the information, this is a tiny drop in the ocean so far compared to what the Tibetans received from India and from China, even though they don't admit it. But... Um, it's true. I mean, it's just, it, as I pointed out last night, there's two things that the Tibetans could do with the, their own translations that we can't do. One is they had a royal edict that they had to stick to a standardized translation. Not all of them followed that edict, but still, it was the king's edict. So we're never going to have that. It's not going to happen unless we get a good king sometime. You never know, I suppose. But... Um, and then secondly, that they were encouraged or allowed to make up words for words that didn't already exist in Tibetan. So that was okay. They could just make up something. So really, we can't, that doesn't happen in Western languages or, your, you know, any of the, I mean, very, you know, words come into a lex, the lexical use, but, but we can't just make something up or stick two words together and say that it means this other thing. You know, we can't, we pretty much can't. So that, and then, and then thirdly, I think, you know, trans, every translator always thinks they know best, and so they just don't want to, you know, think. But I mean, there's some, I think there, you know, some things, I mean, I t sometimes use um, words that I don't particularly like, 
but because they've become so well known, you know, like uh, perfection of wisdom. I don't really like wisdom for that prajna there, but you know, because of Kant's work and stuff and his massive amount of translation already done, calling it the perfection of wisdom. So you just go along with it so that it's not, the, but not everyone is that nice. <laughs> but sometimes I feel like something's on the edge and I could change it and I kind of do, you know? Like I don't think great perfection is a good translation for Dzogchen. And so I started using completion, and I noticed people now are using completeness, which I think is basically the same, and, but it makes a lot more sense to me. You know, so it's, ir it's irresistible to do that. It's just kind of irresistible if you think something's better to start using it, even if it's not, unless it's really entrenched already. And, and the way I answered that last night, too, was to say that, um, you know, it gives you a different angle. If it does give you a different angle on what a word means. You come at it from all different ways. I was transcribing, our, our colleague and dear friend, Richard Barron, Tukinima, once I was transcribing his oral translation of Kala Rinpoche's talk, and it just about drove me nuts because he said the same, you know, Kala Rinpoche would say one thing, and then he'd say it five times in five different ways. But, you know, how that's very kind to the people listening because it's just really bad if you're the transcriber. But, and it's even worse if you know the Tibetan because then you didn't need to hear that. But for people, you know, to come, to get a term translated four, five, six different ways, then you really get a feeling for what it could mean, just like, when, just like a child learns English. Yeah, I've, I've found that if they have, if a person who's translating, whether it's orally or on, on the paper, if the Tibetan is there, and then this, and then following that, then there is the translation. That's easier than if all you get is an English translation without the Tibetan to <laughs> anchor you. Yeah. yeah. Well, what do you think that says? Of I mean, are we ever going to wean ourselves from the Tibetan? Are, are these are these teachings ever going to be meaningful in our language? Uh -huh. <laughs> that's too bad. Well, learn Tibetan. That's all I can say. That's what I did. And I've told this to people. I became a translator because I hate translators. Um, <laughs> I have a question. And it, it's exactly what you just said. Um, oh, well. <laughs> well, it's a question. Do you feel uh, that we in the West will actually have original experiences, our oh own, God. and yeah. what we would do is maybe initially try and describe it in English or French or whatever, and, and then translate it into other modern languages, like, the, like the, when the Tibetans first um, had their own original experiences, they were looking to um, Sanskrit or or whatever the Indian language was that was spoken at the time. And and eventually they didn't do that anymore. Do you see that we are in the beginning of a process where 
we as just human beings um, and practitioners are starting to experience our own insights, uh, our own images of light or our own uh, experiences of emptiness that we would describe in our own ways that would make sense to other, let's say, Americans who are practicing also. Well, I mean, I'm sure that more than half the books in here right now are written by people who think they've had some experience that they can talk about. These aren't all translations. There's all, I mean, everybody is writing a book about their experiences of special epiphanies. Yes. And uh, so whether those are on that same level of, you know, uh, the Tibetan masters, I, I have no way of knowing. And, and we have no way of knowing. I mean, I just hope so. That's all I can say is I just hope so. I mean, I, I don't think, we, we can't just stick to translations forever. Um, I feel like they're clumsy no matter what. And people, people don't need to use translations if teachers just teach. But um, I feel teachers, whoever decides to become a teacher is obliged to look at source material. And they may not know Tibetan. And so they need to look at the source material. Um, but practitioners, just practitioners that aren't teachers, they don't need, they, you know, they should have teachers who teach in their own language, in their own experience. Yeah, we're, we're, I mean, it's happening all over. But whether, like I said, I can't judge the level of their realization. Uh, wouldn't that be a, a kind of natural evolution? Yeah. That you can have 10 people all experiencing, 10 different countries, let's say, all experiencing an original experience of whatever it is, but it is the same experience, more or less. But since you can't, you can't say an experience. There's no, there's right. words and then there's the yeah. experience. Yeah. 10 people could use 10 different words and we'd have 10 different teachings yes. all in. And then we'd have 10 different lineages and right. 10 different monastic establishments and yeah. <laughs> they'd each have lineages and that's exactly what happened in Tibet. In, it, you know, I, the image of the translation projects seems to be the more interesting than the actual, but um, it, in Tibet, remember, very few Tibetans knew Sanskrit, very few. All the Tibetans relied a lot on the Tibetan translations or on Tibetan indigenous writing, which happened massively, which is what we're all translating now. I'm going to control. This isn't a translation from Sanskrit. This is his own composition. Well, the anyway, at least the uh, Treasury of Knowledge was his own composition. So, you know, and he, the, the I mean, Pamasol can verify this. Tibetans don't read sutras and tantras, yeah? No, they just put them up on the shrine. <laughs> That's because they're impossible to read because they're really bad translations because they tried to do a word-for-word -word translation. <laughs> and so the Tibetan people practiced masters and had their own realizations, and then they wrote books or their disciples wrote down what they said. And that became, that's what people look at and that's what people study there. Nobody, I, nobody, I know, I've never met someone, I think I've been, 
I asked uh, one of my teachers, Gante Rinpoche, like couple, last year or something, I said, to t asked him to teach the Heart Sutra, and he was like, <laughs> Sutra, you know, and, and he got very nervous because he'd never taught a sutra, he'd never probably even read one. You know, that it's, that's what happens when translations, you, you, we, no, you can't go on forever with somebody else's culture. You, you know, you have to, it has to become indigenous. It has to become native. But I have no idea if that, when or how or if that's going to be good or if it's going to be the end of the world or, you know, <laughs> the degenerate times. Who knows? Yes, pain. Uh, yes, hi. <laughs> um, so you said that Jungun Control Rinpoche, uh, considering himself an incarnation of Taranata, He's using a Jonang framework here. Yeah. Um, even if the Gellers and Jonang got into it mainly for political reasons, not philosophical, let's say by, by the time you know he's writing uh, late 19th century, maybe they conceived of it in terms of like a philosophical disagreement. Um, Is that Mao's little red book? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm rewriting it. Um, <laughs> Translating it. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. So let's say uh, you know a, a 19th century Gelo picks up Jungun Control's work. Is he going to look at this and go, Ugh, you know, this is some Jonang oh. devilly stuff, or or you know, what yeah. was the reaction at the time by other people? Did anyone, yeah. Gelo or otherwise, look at it and go, oh, he's done this in completely wrong? Yeah, I mean, actually, people do that all the time. I mean, there's this, it's just, that's an endless process of everyone thinking the other one's wrong. It's kind of a, a problem. Um, uh, there's a lot of history behind I'm sure you know, actually, but, um, and I was going to talk a little bit about, about if I have time and to get a head start on tomorrow, you know, on this major difference of Sarma and Nyingma, the old, early translations and the later translations, um, which created a big kind of difference um, going in. But the thing with the Jonah, with Taranata, I mean, yeah, it became, um, the, when the Dalai Lama came down, we have Taranata is in the Shangpa lineage, Kalarimache's lineage, and our, we built a stupa down in Santa Fe and we painted murals. You know, Cynthia Moku and Sanjay Elliott, they painted it all, and there are Taranatas in there. And, and then, the Dalai Lama came to do a kind of a blessing, you know, and a little teaching he was going to do on something from Gampopa, I think, you know, very non-sectarian, cardgear thing. And, and uh, they walked in, the huge tent was put out because there wasn't room inside the stupa, and in walks the Dalai Lama with like 15 entourage monks, right? And he's supposed to just walk in and go around and get up on his throne, but he, they go in, and it's like nothing happens, and they're in there, and you just hear, <laughs> you know, and it's because there's this picture of Taranata. <laughs> like, it's like a big deal that we have Taranata there. And um, when he finally gets up on his throne, I, I wish I still had the tape of this, too. And instead of doing his discussion of it was from Jewel Ornament of Gam, from by Kampopa, he just starts talking about whether or not Taranata was a, a heathen or not, you know, basically. <laughs> he, he talked about um, 
well, if what he meant by other emptiness is da 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 da, then that's okay because that's Buddhist, you know. But if what he meant by that is da 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 da, then that's completely not okay. And the Dalai Lama is, you know, he's really open-minded. I mean, he gives Nyingma teachings. He gives, you know, but this Taranata thing just it really gets them. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty interesting. So he he didn't. He didn't have an opinion, I guess, on what Taranata meant, but he, that was what he talked about. And he never did the teaching other than the Gampoba because it was all so disturbing that, you know, whole thing. And then he just did a <laughs> blessing with Omana Pemihung, and that was it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was still really, really wonderful, but it was just kind of funny, yeah, that, that his picture took up so much. Yeah. A follow-up to that, but do you think you're assuming that people would know that Jomgun Control's framework was from the Jonang? But do, but do you think anybody knows that? I mean, other than a few, um, like, you know, the ge the general Tibetan yeah. re educated Tibetan readership. Well, um, in terms of the Shentong Rangtong, I think people do know that he's a Shentong. Uh, no, no, I meant specifically about using the a Jonong framework for the. Oh, for um, the, the, the yes, um, probably not. Yeah, you're right. Probably not. Yeah. Not a lot of people know that. Although, a lot of people know that he, uh, you know, has that incarnate connection with Taranata. I think and. Um, and as you know, as we are finding out, he really plagiarized Taranata. <laughs> I mean, if it says written by Jamgun Control, a lot of times it's actually written by Taranata. I mean, majorly plagiarized. But that's a common thing in yeah. Buddhist, Tibetan Buddhist scholarship is to take other people. It's a sign of respect. <laughs> I, I was okay. asking, like in a historical context, like would they have known back then when it, you know, when this text comes out? Okay, and that's okay. Yeah, it, that right. was the same. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. Yep. Wait for the. <laughs> oh, d I'm sorry. Okay. Do I need to give some more background about that? Yeah. Well, okay. Um, so. Uh, well, the best book, I, you know, a really good book to read on this is called The Buddha from Dolpo by Cyrus Stearns. Um, and Dolpo, Dolpopa was an early, uh, he was Sakya, right? He was originally Sakya Lama, and he uh, did a new translation of the Kala Chakra Tantra, and he, he, he had a huge, you know, incredible realizations from this new translation, totally different than the old translation of the Kala Chakra. And based on his realizations from that, he developed a, a whole kind of different philosophy, different terminology, and it was radically different than the, what had become quite a standard philosophical view of Madhyamaka. That's a whole history in itself because you know, Madhya, the, you you might hear you know oh this everybody the best you know highest truth is is prasangika madhyamika, 
and but that wasn't always the case. That just became when that came along with the dominance of certain philosophers, and particularly Tsongkhapa and things. But um, so that Dompopo sort of was the the, the beginning of the Jonang, of a, a lineage called Jonang. Here I even have it. See, you asked, and I brought it, and I thought, oh, no one would ask. Of the author, well, the translator's name is Cyrus Stearns. E A R N S. Yeah, actually, I wrote his name on that little handout for a different book, the Introduction to Luminous Lives. But anything by Cyrus is good. Cyrus is one of the I implicitly trust anything he translates. I mean, there's very few people I would say that about. Um, Maybe Jeremy Dorje, that's about it. So the Jonang Monastery was founded by Yumo Mikyu Dorje, also a Kalachakra teacher. And it's their main kind of tantra that they follow. Um, and that was way back in like the 12th century. And then Dolpush, the one Dolpopa for short, we'll just call him Dolpopa. Isn't that Dolpo Sheriff Jeltsin was from 1292 to 1361. So he is the one who kind of coined the usage of this term other emptiness, which is very, very different than the idea of self-emptiness or intrinsic emptiness, which is the main philosophy of Madhyamaka. I hate talking about philosophy, but that's just the, the short version. Um, and another place, uh, Cyrus Stern talks about this all the time. Anyway, it's a, you know, it's a very, there just was a so-called Jonang teacher here recently teaching Kala Chakra, if anybody saw him. He taught, um, so, um, yeah, the Buddha from Dolpo, I think, and let's see, so, Taranata and Kunga Jaltsen were in the lineage from the Jonang Monastery, and they were some of the great ones, but later than Dolpo Sheriff Jaltsen. And um, that Shentong view was regarded as, I mean, you know, you know, the idea of of things being intrinsically empty, that's pretty long-term Buddhist idea, at least Mahayanist idea. And, and, uh, and then his language was confusing for people because he was saying, no, actually, you're not empty of your own nature, you're empty of any extraneous nature such as defilements and neuroses and negative mind states and all of that is not part of your being, your true nature. So you're empty of other stuff. <laughs> you're empty of all that bad stuff, but you actually have a nature of clear, you know, pure, clear light, radiant mind, pure. Now that can sound like you're saying you really exist. And people just didn't like that. They, they, they didn't want to exist. <laughs> it was a much easier not to exist. <laughs> I don't know what's that. <laughs> I mean, what do you? Yeah, but, I mean, in terms of self, in terms of self, 
Right. The self is just its own nature, and its own nature is not a thing. It's just consciousness or energy. Right. I mean, well, I mean, that is the Shen Hong view. It's not a self. They're not positing a self, actually. But it could sound like they are. And that's supposedly what made everybody all upset. But like I said, I don't believe it. I don't, I, in the history of religion, people don't kill each other out of beliefs. It's always got power and money and politics and stuff is involved behind the scenes, you know? It's never about, it's never about like some issue really of like some theological fine point of they don't go kill each other over that. And that's my opinion. I think there's always more behind it. There's always politics and power behind it. So, but nevertheless, he, he you know, he, he got, even though the fifth Dalai Lama said about Taranata that, and they, it was his uncle, right? Taranata was the uncle of the fifth Dalai Lama. They were actually close. They respected each other highly, but he, he made a bad move siding with the Tsong kings, and so they suppressed all the Jonang monasteries in central Tibet and turned them into Galupa monasteries. But I don't know how we got on this subject. We, should go, we shouldn't go there. <laughs> <laughs> we well, the, the, to try to bring it back, and I think maybe what is the interesting point about what Jonggun Khonshul did was that he, as you began by saying, he took a lot of collected a lot of things, some of which had, um, weren't being currently practiced or accessible or become marginalized, possibly for these kinds of reasons. And by including them in his collection, then he just sort of gave his, you know, sort of seal of approval yeah. on it. And sometimes people didn't remember the history of them. Yeah, yeah. So like taking a certain framework, well, nobody really yeah. knew that. So then yeah. they just, took this framework and, you know, and all the text there, so it kind of separated yeah. it out and... Well, yeah, that was his whole point, you know, and, and here's all these great practices, and a lot of them, uh, uh, Taranata wrote a lot of practices, and for instance, in the Shangpa tradition, almost all the, like the majority of practices we do in the Shangpa are written by Taranata, because he's such a good writer, he's a brilliant, unbelievable genius, you know, and, and we're not thinking, you know, we're practicing what, what's in there as a liturgy. In fact, Kala Rinpoche really hated this debate. He, and, and we didn't know anything about it. We were practicing Taranata. He never, ever told us about, you know, Shentong and Rangtong. And then one of us found out was Richard Baldwin. He found out, he you know, heard about this debate, and he, his name was, I think, Karma Yunten, I think was his Tibetan name that Kala Rinpoche gave him, and he asked him, you know, what about Shentong and Rangtong? And Kala Rinpoche was like, oh, Karma Yunten is so smart, <laughs> you know? And he just completely embarrassed him in front of everybody. He wouldn't go there at all. He wouldn't talk about him. And then Dejung Rinpoche, my second most greatest teacher, Sakya teacher, all, Larry Mermelstein and all the translation committee of Nalanda Translation Committee came down to New Mexico because they were translating some little text about Shentong and Rangtong or something, and, and uh, oh, I think it was a lion's roar, singing arrow. And Dejan Rinpoche was, God, what a wonderful man. The tr really, truly the most Rime person I've ever met and a huge Sakya practitioner, you know. 
And, and the, as soon as it was out of their mouth, he went, he said, Rangdong Chab Suchi, Shendong Chab Suchi, you know, I refuge in, <laughs> in Rangdong, refuge in Shendong. I mean, the, it, it's really just, it's just, you know, if you had nothing to do, they didn't have TV. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, they just needed some good, some good, you know, streaming thing to keep the mic bright, and so that, that was it, Shantong and Rangtong. Has nothing to do with practice, only this does it have to do with practice, I think. What do you experience when you meditate? Do you experience nothing? Do you experience emptiness? Or do you experience something radiant, you know? And, uh, and maybe the second question is, what, what do you want to experience? You know, how do you want to experience your mind? As, a, as radiant, clear light bliss, or it's just empty of intrinsic self? I mean, really those two things are not different, but you could approach it like from a different aspect or a different feeling sense, you know? And how you verbalize that before you sit down to practice maybe affects how you experience it. You know, if you think you're sitting down to experience the clear light, nature of mind, then maybe that's how it feels based on, you know, how much our language affects our experience. But if you think you're sitting down to experience the non-self of self and non-self of phenomena, that's how the experience happens. So that's the only difference that I think that's important. Um, and I prefer the, you know, clear light bliss. <laughs> I know, it seems like a no-brainer to me, but <laughs> um, if there's no other questions, maybe I'll talk a little bit just about as a kind of framework for the rest of the weekend um, or as a jumping ahead. And we'll still have more questions because how long am I supposed to talk? Is it nine? Is that how long I'm supposed to talk? Okay. Don't say that. <laughs> I'm gone. <laughs> bye, bye, bye. Um, even though there was, you know, this this whole, uh, we, I talked a little bit about this last night, and I don't want to repeat too much, but these two phases of translation, or also known as the two spreadings of the Dharma in Tibet, um, ended up that there's a big difference between. Um, the early spreading and the later spreading in terms of organization of their material, you know, in terms of the organization of the material. So, and also as we, as we talked about it, also the actual, I would say the actual terminology because of the standardization of translation after the Mahavyutpati was in the royal edict that all the translators not only had to follow it, but they had to retranslate the old ones that had been done and, um, so there's a kind of like an uncomfortableness uh, between all the Sarma and the Nyingma sometimes, which Kontrol and his compatriots were trying to overcome by showing that they were all true, valid practices. But nevertheless, they're quite different. I mean, they're treated differently, and you'll see they have different systems of organizing uh, the literature. And because I mentioned um, how you know, the randomness of anthologies. When the canon was created by Bhutta and Rinchen Drup, he didn't include a whole lot of the 
uh, Nyingma Tantras and Nyingma works because he felt that they were not authentic Indian, you know, spoken by the Buddha. I mean, we already know that like nothing was spoken by the Buddha. I mean, even the Abhidharma is not spoken by the Buddha. But nevertheless, that's what the conjurer, the canon is supposed to be, is that which was spoken by the Buddha. So they were left out. So that's, that was like a big kind of blow. So then the Nyingma had to create their own canon, which is called the Nyingma Jubum, and that had various, um, Ratnalingpa, I think it was, that created the original one, wasn't it? I think so. And um, uh, so there's a different canon, even though later on, and even a, such a stick in the mud as Sakya Pandita found, you know, said no, this one here is, there's the Sanskrit original, it exists, I've seen it. Even so, um, the, that wasn't included. So that kind of created a sort of a bad vibe <laughs> among uh, all of the later schools that developed in the second spreading with the new translation schools, and that includes all of these, out of the eight, it includes seven everything except Nyingma. So Nyingma became uh, a kind of a, d a different ballgame uh, altogether. And the thing to remember about the, this development into Tibet is that they weren't Nyingma until there was Sarma, you know. There was nothing called Nyingma because there was no, Nyingma means old and Sarma means new. So there can be nothing old until there's something new. So. So really that name got coined after the second spreading um, of the ancients, of the stuff that had been translated for 150 years had been going on, um, not systematically, but still a lot. Um, and also quite probably a lot of it was not, um, was it was in fact indigenous or extra canonical or whatever you want to call it, but nevertheless is still Buddha's, you know, things. And, um, I think that is something to, to keep in mind when we look at the way they organize themselves and they organize all this. I think that, you know, the early school, the early spreading, I mean, it was even more confusing. There's just, it's, I mean, Nyingma literature is such a headache. I was saying that to me, I hate it. I mean, it's wonderful teachings, but the it was so hard to organize all that stuff and it just doesn't fit in any organizational scheme doesn't fit and there's the nine of this and then the three of those and three and that's like that and that's a thing and each one is but that was really dualistic and now there's even a higher one and it's the real non-dual but then there's something more even more non-dual than that one and you know it's just like incredible hierarchy of structure that doesn't actually fit and then at, and then they come later and try and put the different like tantras and things into one or these different categories and it's very hard to sort out we will try tomorrow but um, um, because of the you know huge amount and then when it became more standardized and controlled by the government um, then uh, the structure is a little bit easier and you get the four tantras and it's kind of more, you know, but even then it doesn't quite fit. Uh, I mean, it's a fantastic effort, fantastic job that the Tibetans did trying to organize all this material. Uh, can you, I can't even imagine. I mean, what, do, you know, how do you guys do it here? Like, what do you put on which shelf? We, we don't even know how to alphabetize the 
Yeah, I mean, I have like five shelves and I try and make sense of them. And it's like, well, wait, does this go in Nyingma or is it over here or, you know? So I just, I just, and then, and then the Tibetan authors became so hugely prolific. I mean, so, we, there's so many texts, really, it's unbelievable on every single subject. So it's very hard to keep track of. So, you know, they try kind of desperately to impose some kind of order on it. And this, you know, controls is just one. It's just one version of, you know, a way to order it, which I think is convenient, and I like it just because it's about accomplishment about practice, you know, like everything else, whatever. But this is just about, you know, what, you know, the, the lineage of practice that came down. Um, that interests me more. That's how I'd like to think about it rather than any other particular thing, but that could just be me. So, but I'm the translator and so, <laughs> yeah. So do, do is there, so, Basically, what's going on? Are you guys clear about it? The eight practice, these eight accomplishment lineages, and the two, and the collections, mainly these two that we've been talking about, and the difference in them. Okay. Whew. Good. I can't tell. There's, you know, even for me, what to say and not say is hard to organize just one talk. Probably, I know too much facts and and myths and legends and it's you know hard to keep them keep them in line so are there any other questions because otherwise i i'm done i mean i have loads of other things i'll ask you a question hello oh yeah. sorry uh, thank you um his name is um what's the gentleman's name that we're talking about? Jungle uh, Control. JK, if you can't yeah. remember. I always that's in my notes all the time is JK. JK, yeah. Yeah. So from Trumpet Rumper says the individual path of liberation. I read that he took a lot of his instructions, uh like he taught meditation in the style of JK. It mm -hmm. may have been a, one of his incarnations. Yeah, maybe. Shichen control. Perhaps, yeah. 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 So I was just wondering if uh, uh, it seems that I'm in Shambhala and these days we practice close technique. and if Close uh, technique? Yeah, uh-huh. You know, know, mindfulness of breath. Oh, okay, and yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. It seems like in this book it's more of an open technique. And so I'm wondering if uh, what, what the original person might have said about that. What do you mean? I, I don't quite understand the question. Trumper uh, Mishay says that the in-breath is too self-confirming oh, to focus on the in-breath. And uh, I'm a little confused because now my tradition is saying to focus on the in-breath. Oh, right. Do you have any ideas about that? Or have you read? Uh, the the particular teaching, the way Trumper Rinpoche taught of, yeah. um, you know, letting go, letting go in the out-breath. Yes. Right? Yes. Is is that what you're talking about? Yes. Yeah, or boycotting it. He'd say boycott the uh, uh, the out breath. I haven't come across that in anywhere except in Trungpa Rinpoche. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, not that it's. A, I think it's a great idea, but I, you know, 
makes sense to me, but I, I actually, so I, I can't say uh. where it comes from. A lot of his students used to say he taught shamatha from an ati point of view, whatever that means, but. Yeah. I th one. Well, one of the things we might learn from talking about eight different practice lineages is that distinction like that is maybe important um, and uh, interesting to learn about within your tradition, but it's also nice to realize that there are other ways of doing things too. And so one, I think one of the sort of amazing points that we can take from the larger teaching here about eight different practice lineages, each one with massively complex series of practices and teachings and so on and different philosophies uh, is that any one thing doesn't have to be so, uh, you know, taken as the ultimate and most important <laughs> thing. That's the Rime idea, Yeah, that's the <laughs> yeah, Rime idea. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Thank you. I think I didn't talk enough about, rim, you know, what is that attitude of Rime? Um, it's important to understand it. It's not like it's, you shouldn't change your practice because you see that someone else is doing something else or something, but you just know that there's so many, I know it, like when you use like Buddhisms anymore, you know, that's the cool thing in academia. You don't say Buddhism anymore, you say Buddhisms. But I mean, there's a point to that. There's a lot of different approaches and particularly in Tibetan Buddhism, which is Vajrayana, and Vajrayana defines itself as the path of skillful techniques. So there's lots, I mean, that's what's great about it, is there's tons of ways of doing stuff, lots and lots and lots. So that's a good thing, but it can be a little disturbing because you think you got it, close placement of mindfulness or whatever it is, and then you hear about someone else who's doing something different, it's like, ah! But they're all good, you know, you just, uh, you just have to do what your teacher tells you to, kind of. Or if, or if the teacher's wrong, then you do what you want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Excellent. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. Any other questions good. or? All set. All right. Okay. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you.